Muchas gracias, hermano. I just thought I'd throw that in. I think it's dessert and salad. I'm going for both. All right. Good morning. What a wonderful weekend this is. I'm thankful for a ton of things. I am thankful for this. I'm thankful that I'm not in Buffalo, New York this morning. Anyway, I mean, you know, and for, seriously, though, for our friends in Buffalo, five feet of snow in two days is over the top, and I think they really do need our prayers. I'm thankful, and this is the wrap-up weekend for the series we've been in called Playlist, bringing our, our voices and our hearts to God. And I'm thankful that in my experience and for 2,000 years since Jesus that the congregation, the church, and music have always been together. 50 years ago, Ruth and I were in Ludwigsburg, Germany, a little town, I don't know exactly where it is in Germany now, but we woke up on a Sunday morning to this. brought up in a congregation in Europe back in the day and even today, when the bells start ringing, if if you're in the village and they start an hour before service, if you're in that far out village, the farthest one, that's when you start walking. Next time they ring, then the village is closer and they start walking and so forth and so on. If you go there today, they even have groups of bell ringers and tunes. They're up in the belfry doing all these things. But I love this story about bells that I read not long ago. It was Easter Sunday morning. 1799 in the town of Felkirch, Austria. The people of the town woke up to, found that, to find that they were surrounded, besieged by the troops of Napoleon. They knew their defenses couldn't withstand an attack. They weren't that kind of fortified city and the city elders got together to decide terms of surrender. And in the middle of that moment, in that dark moment, the dean of the church, an old man, stood up and in trembling voice addressed the gathering and said, this is Easter day, the day of our king's resurrection. We must have one moment of triumph. Let us at least ring the bells. If the town falls, it falls. But we must ring the bells of Easter. They agreed and they started ringing the bells and when the bells started ringing and that sound rolled up the valleys and up the mountains and over the countryside, the people on the outside of the walls were confused, the invaders, and they started saying, why such a celebration? What's going on? And their conclusion was that the Austrian army had come in overnight to relieve the city and the French broke and ran to the sound of the bells. I love that story. Image of battle is a good one. Not a bad thing. We need to remember that even though we might be in a battle, sometimes within ourselves, sometimes within our culture, sometimes within the world itself, we need to remember that we, who are kingdom children, if you will, children of the king, if we've stepped into Jesus, we need to remember that we belong to a city not made with hands, that whatever our experience with this present age, that the kingdom of Christ will never perish. When kingdom people sing the truth together, it reminds us, here we go again, we said this nine weeks ago when we started this series, we're saying it again. When we worship the king together, it reminds us of who he is and who we are. 
When we affirm him, we find out what we're designed for and what we're made for and who we really are. Just a synopsis very quickly of playlist. You know, we, we started out on that first week with, with Pastor Jeff and, and we heard that wonderful thing from the UK at the end of the service called, uh, not we believe, but whatever it was called, whatever that was, right? <laughs> the blessing. And it, it was just, it was overwhelming and it was talking about the obedience to, to sing together 50 times commanded in Scripture. And, and then the next week, my son-in-law came down from Eugene, Oregon. We sat up here and talked about worshiping God and take me home country road and all that kind of stuff. It was about singing together. And then the next week's encouragement and celebration and that wonderful message from Pastor Mac in the middle of her own treatment for cancer, talking to us about the song of hope in a time of suffering and then Amazing Grace, and then Spiritual Warfare, and then Truth last week. And this week, as we wrap up, I want to talk to you about Heaven's Song. How about when all this wraps up? What about when everything goes up in smoke, and there's the new heavens, and the new... How does all that work? And for that, we're going to go to the book of Revelation in Scripture. I can almost hear some of us sucking air through our teeth. You know, oh boy, here we go. And online, you can suck air in the privacy of your own home but the but the but the point is we say revelation like that's not my like favorite devotional book why don't we do Jude or Colossians or a gospel or something like that because there's so much I don't understand or I don't get the imagery or whatever it is what's fascinating to me about revelation which simply means the unveiling of something hidden and the unveiling part in revelation is Christ the king and we'll come to that in a moment but if you're a literature person, there are all kinds of genres, all kinds of kinds of writing in Revelation. You have story. The book is full of story. You have letters. The book is full of letters. You have just prophecy, prophetic words, and, and apocalyptic literature, again, unveilings of hidden things. And you have song all the way through here and all the way through the book of Revelation. Even when it says in Revelation, and they said with a loud voice, many scholars, maybe most, believe that there were tunes put to that in the early church, so these were actually sung. But you say, well, who, who wrote that? I mean, because it's such a different kind of writing, and if you haven't read it, take a run at it, okay? John he used to fish on the Sea of Galilee, Jesus chose him to be one of the 12, and now he's an old man. And he's what they call the Bishop of Ephesus. And if you're into geography, what is now, what was Asia Minor in that area is Turkey now. But Ephesus was a, a central town. And uh, John's problem was that he took on the government. Well, not by marching in the streets or that sort of thing. It's that at that time, about the end of the first century, they were demanding under the Roman authority that you worship Caesar as God, worship Caesar as God. And there were these group, mostly Jewish believers in Jesus, who stood up and said, you know, we just, uh, we can't go there because I know he's king, but we have this other king that's like bigger. So we're not gonna do that. And for that, for his challenge to the government, he was exiled to an island in the Aegean Sea called Patmos. And there they have mines. So quite possibly he worked in the mines at an old age, but he was praying. And on the Lord's day, and it starts out, the book starts out, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and he has a vision. 
And the vision has all kinds of images in it. And if you read the book of Revelation, it's got all these images that we don't necessarily connect with or understand. A lot of them are from Old Testament books like Daniel and Zechariah and so forth. But they would, but the readers or listeners would understand those images better. But we'll come to that. Here's my thought. My first thought is this. The revelation, which is the revelation of Jesus Christ, is filled with worship in song. Worship in song. It feels like every other chapter you've got song, worship, praise, music, whatever it is. This is just Revelation 5. I'm going to read you some of the things they said or sang. Then I looked, John speaking, then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. That's a lot. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders and in a loud voice they were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. He's just stacking up the affirmations and the accolades, right? Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And in verse 8, it says, the four living creatures said amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. I have no idea what it would say. We're talking millions here. I mean, we're, we're talking creatures in the sea, and the, you know, what's a, how does all that sound? I, I have to confess to you that this past weekend, Ruth and I were in Oregon in Eugene. I spoke there. Our son-in-law pastors congregation there. But on Saturday, before that Sunday service, we went to Autzen Stadium in Eugene. We're 60,000 people from Oregon and Washington universities uh, combined, and Oregon played Washington. I, won't, I don't want to dwell on the fact that Oregon got beat, but I'm just saying that, that they, but I have to tell you that 60,000 people in a bowl-shaped stadium, one of the loudest in the country, were on their feet most of the time shouting at the top of their lungs. For half the game, I was like this with my, because you know, I've already lost some hearing. I don't want to lose it all at a football game. I mean, it was an incredible sound. It was almost like a rock concert where they crank it up so it crushes your chest. One of those, it was that kind. And that's what John is describing here, the, the sound that is lifted in praise to God. It isn't the sound that gets me about about revelation it's the images i mean you've got flaming eyes and booming voices and battles in the heavenlies you got flying creatures with crazy horns and eyes and it, i mean if you're if you don't take it spiritually it's sort of a cross between jurassic park and harry potter i mean it's just it's crazy and if you're more spiritual you talk about lord of the rings and the and the lion the witch and the wardrobe okay but I'm, I'm driving back from Oregon last week with Ruth, and I've started over the last few years running my messages that I speak to you by Ruth. And I, I just started doing that. And, and I know what she'll say. She'll say, leave that out. No, don't do that, because my messages could be a lot longer if it weren't for Ruth. So you need to just say thank you on this Thanksgiving week for Ruth, because she said, you really don't need that 12th story. Just You can leave that out. But I turned to her and I said, what do you think about the book of Revelation? And she looked at me and said, it's, it feels like a fairy story to me. I started thinking about that. I said, well, yeah. You know, Einstein said this, imagination is greater than knowledge because imagination has no limits. 
And what we call fairy stories, I'm not, talking, I'm not talking about Sleeping Beauty or Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, the Disney-esque kind of thing. I'm talking about authentic, epic, what Anne of Green Gables, those of you ladies who know that, would call a, van, a fantastical journey. Those kinds of things. Those stories have reality behind them, and I'll explain it this way. There's this fellow named J.R.R. Tolkien. Here's a picture of him, I think. He was a young man in his mid-twenties when he met this other young man named C.S. Lewis. And they were both professors at a university. And uh, Tolkien was a believer in Jesus. He was a, he was a strong Catholic. But you had uh, C.S. Lewis, who from the age of 15 had said he was an atheist. Both of them had gone through the Great War, had fought in World War I which took out a whole generation of England. I mean, a whole generation of young men virtually died in World War I. And Tolkien and Lewis talked about fairy stories. C.S. Lewis has this great quote that says, maybe you'll get old enough sometime to read a fairy story. Because he believed that fairy stories were not for kids, but they were the real deal in terms of the ideas behind them. And Tolkien put those ideas down in this idea the five very deep human longings expressed in those kind of stories. Number one, we want to step outside of time as human beings. And even, even though I know I'm going to die someday or this body's going to fall off, you say, ah, both died. Nah, his body fell off. He keeps going. But the point is this, that, the, that there's something about wanting to be outside of time that is unique to us, I believe. We want to defeat death. We want to communicate with non-human beings. You say, really, that's where it, well, when you're praying to God, you're not talking to a guy from Cincinnati, okay? He's a non-human being, or you have the stories in the Gospels of Mary and Joseph and the angelic encounters. We want a love that never ends, and we want to see good triumph over evil. Let me say those five deep longings again that Tolkien would maintain are at the heart of what, we, what they call these, these epic fairy stories. We want to step outside of time. We want to defeat death. We want to communicate with non-human beings. We want, to, we want love that never ends. And we want to see good triumph over evil. If you took those five things as a template and laid them over the book of Revelation, you got it. Okay? No matter how the imagery is or how it's explained, those are the pieces in the mix. And if we're going to have triumph of good over evil and life over death, we need somebody to lead that charge. And Revelation shows us that somebody. I mean, you know, this is not baby Jesus meek and mild in Revelation. This is, this is the king with eyes like flames of fire and feet like burnished brass. I mean, we're talking intense here. And... Genesis, right, shows us God the creator, the artistry of God. Ruth will look out to the west some evenings on a clear Colorado evening and watch the sun go down, and she'll say, Dick, it takes my breath away. How does he put all those colors up next to each other like that and blend them? Or you just look at the Rockies and you try to, how do you describe that? No wonder John is talking in these fantastical images. And you get to the Gospels, and here is, God, the God-man in Jesus who comes so we can touch him and we don't have to. He comes as a baby so we don't have to be scared of him, okay? We all get the baby part. 
And, and he's the redeemer and the servant who suffers and the lamb of God. But you get to Revelation, and it's the revelation of Christ, the king of the universe, sitting on his throne. Nobody walks into the throne, throne room of the most powerful king ever and says, dude, how you doing? You don't, you don't do that. You fall on your face in front of a king like that. And throne, that word, is used 46 times in those 22 chapters of Revelation. And corollary words like authority and power and glory and on, 70 plus times just in those chapters. Just, just hear, hear the language. This is Revelation 1. This is John writing letters to the seven churches in Asia, like Ephesus and Colossae. And so John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Grace and peace to you from him who is, who was, and who is to come. And from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. This is the king of all kings, okay? The ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loved Excuse me, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. And in verse 8 it says, I'm the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, I, I, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I have a hard time getting my head around King. I just do. I'm brought up in a republic, in a democracy. You've heard me say this before. I like voting and all that. Nobody votes on a king. The king is the king. That's how that is, right? And this idea of the king of all creation was helped along in my own experience by two moments in time. I'm sure I have others, but this moment in time was really a key for me. Ruth and I went to the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana, not to the, college, to the university, but to be in that town, to do a church plant in 1966. Many of you know that. 24 years old. Nobody wants a 24-year-old lead pastor unless you're an 18-year-old college kid because then a 24-year-old's almost gone. And so the, this thought... You know, I didn't know, we have 15 folks and so forth, and so over the next few years we worked hard and the congregation grew, but I preached like I had been preached to or at as I grew up, and a lot of that was do this, don't do that. It was a lot of do's and don'ts, and I'm, I'm for those things, but beneath those there have to be some principle. There has to be some concept that makes all that work, and so that's the way I was teaching, and people were coming to Jesus, but it was a slow deal, and I was whining one day. I was in my whining mode, and it, no, you don't have to show your hands, but you, some of you get the whining mode. And I was in the whining mode, usually when I didn't understand. And, and I said, you know, I think I'm doing what I'm supposed to do here, God, but it doesn't seem to be working like I think it should. We need, little, we need more. You know? And this is what I thought he said to me. And this is not an, an out loud voice, but it was just an awareness. He said, Foth, why don't you stop telling those people what to do and start telling them who I am and let me tell them what to do? Stop telling those people what to do and tell them who I am and let me tell them what to do. And I'm thinking, such a deal. That takes such pressure off me and it saves you from having to clean up all the messes. I, it's a good deal, both ways, you know, win-win. I was 28 when that happened. I'm 51 some years later in Washington, D.C., going to meet my first senator. And I'm nervous because I don't come from Yale or money or any of that stuff. And, and it's a club of 100, most powerful club in the world. And I'm, and I'm whining again because you can whine at any age. And some of you older folks can attest to it. You can talk to me after. But the point is this. 
But the point is this, I, and, I, and I felt like the Lord said this, really, in, in, in my heart. Foth, if you speak to the king of the universe in the morning, it's not hard to speak to a United States senator in the afternoon. If you speak to the king of the universe in the morning, why don't you say that phrase with me? If you speak to the king of the universe in the morning, there's something about that that lets you know, that's my dad. That's, that's my father. I'm, I'm royalty here. I can walk into a room. I don't have to be arrogant, but at least I can be confident because I spoke to the king of the universe in the morning. There's an old song that um, has to do with crowning that king. It's um, <clears throat> crown him with many crowns. Some of you know it goes like this. Crown him with many crowns, the lamb upon his throne. Hark how the heavenly anthem drowns all music but his own. Awake my soul and sing of him who died for thee and hail him as thy matchless king through all eternity. Really good for being spontaneous. Thank you that I didn't have to solo alone. That king is holy, all-powerful, eternal. Holy, all-powerful, eternal. You say, what's, what's with the holy part? Because sometimes we use that in a deprecatory way. Ah, he's a holy Joe. Ah, she's more holy, holier than thou. That sort of thing. Holy means to be um, set apart. It means to be different. It means to be without flaw. It means to be pure. Pure is good. I know we don't use that very, but nobody walks into a, into a restaurant or into some grocery store and say, could I, could I just have three bottles of impure water? We don't do that. We want purity. You get purity with this king, complete and whole. Here's, that other, here's another song. Okay, go, go with me on this one if you, if you know it. Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty, early in the morning our song shall rise to Thee. Holy, 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 merciful and mighty, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. He's not only all-powerful and holy, He's eternal, goes on forever. Prime ministers don't do that. Presidents, four, eight years, they're gone. Kings, even long-lasting kings or queens, like Queen Elizabeth, 70 years, you're out. This king goes on forever. I was that 28-year-old young pastor and a, a master's student uh, studying for a master's degree in political science at the University of Illinois who was a teaching assistant, taught a class in poli-sci, political science, 101, it's for freshmen. And he had come to faith. And I asked him one day, how did you start this journey in Jesus? How did you do that? He said, it started in a poli-sci 101 class. I said, really? He said, yeah, I gave him an assignment. Let's create the very best government we can. What would it look like? And some kid said, well, it wouldn't be a committee. That wouldn't work. Somebody said, so it needs to be a person. I said, okay. I said, but it needs to, the, we, 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 we need to be in awe of that person. It can't just be a president or premier or prime minister. It needs to be a monarch. I said, okay. 
And somebody said, yeah, but monarchs, kings, they, they take your land and take your kids and take your stuff. And, you know, no kings in history can you look at that are very good at all. They just take your stuff. So you, you want one that's kind, that's benevolent. And somebody else said, well, you not only need that, you need somebody who knows what every subject in his kingdom needs. That's what you need. And somebody else said, that's all great, but kings die. And somebody else said, well, that means we'd need that kind of king who lives forever. They got it. They hadn't even looked in here, and they got it. The king who is the Christ, who is kind and benevolent, who knows what every one of his subjects, us, needs, who lives forever, the king eternal. Listen to how Isaiah 700 years before Jesus says it. You'll hear this again at Christmas time. You're familiar with this, many of you. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And finally, that king lives in a city of unceasing joy. When you get to the end of the book, when you get to the end of Revelation, those last two chapters, it talks about a new city and a, a new heaven and a new earth in this city. And, and John is trying to describe it, I think, in the best language he can. See, you've got these 12 gates and they're giant pearls and you've got streets that are translucent gold. And, you know, he's giving it his best shot, I think. I don't think it, probably it comes close, but it's a, it's a good college try, Right? But in that place, the new heaven and the new earth, it will be a culture of yes, because this is the good king. This is the king who loves us. This is the king who turns out to be our father, whose, whose eyes may be flames of fire, but his arms embrace us. It's that king. And in that, in that culture of yes, there are a series of no's that make that yes possible, because it says there will be no pain. No more tears, no more suffering, no more death, no more frustration. I love those no's. I'm fond of those no's, okay? When I said that, I thought to myself, boy, if you don't have pain or suffering or tears or dying, that'll put a song in your heart. And I blurted that out to her. I said, boy, on that day, when we're in that new city and that, or that, that city of the new heaven and the new, new earth, that's going to put a song in my heart. And she looked at me and very sweetly said, even thinking about it now puts a song in my heart. There's something about knowing what's coming and knowing what already is that we have experienced. When we sing praises together, it is heaven come down. I know one fellow who would say that's absolutely true. And I close with this. His name was George, living in London. George was back in 1741. And a little-known writer sent lyrics to this German fellow, George, who was a musician. And they were lyrics for what you would call in, back in the day a libretto. It was for an oratorio, which is this huge musical presentation with, with orchestra and with choir and staging and costumes and all of that. And the ideas and words in this were uh, full of scripture. Now, George had, was in a dark place. Some of us get that even today. George was in a dark place. He had been shunned by British nobility. He was struggling with depression. He was in deep debt. And as they leafed through the pages... Something clicked, 
and it was full of scriptures that praise God and he got inspired and he started to write and as he wrote his manservant said he wrote for 24 days sometimes hardly eating at all he wrote an entire oratorio but when he got to one part in particular he read these words wonderful counselor mighty God everlasting father prince of peace I know that my redeemer lives hallelujah and his manservant said he jumped to his feet and started jumping around the word shouting hallelujah 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 what the English pastor J.B. Phillips said means three cheers for Jesus I mean he was doing this his name was George Friedrich Handel And he told someone later, I think I did see heaven before me and the great God himself. Never before and never again would he experience that moment. But that part of the oratorio, which we call Handel's Messiah, which was first performed in Dublin in Easter, 1742, has this part in it called the Hallelujah Chorus. And in an early presentation of that oratorio where the King of England was in attendance when it got to the Hallelujah Chorus, he stood up in honor of a greater king than he. And I can't think of any better uh, exclamation point to the playlist series that for us to just appreciate for a couple of minutes what that must have sounded like in the heart of this man, George Friedrich Handel. I would like to ask you to stand with me if you're able. And if you can imagine, just let your imagination run, what it would be to stand in a new heaven and a new earth where there is no pain or suffering. And you're there with all those gone before. And you're there with the king. And following Jesus, we step into that kingdom. And so it's not just out there. It's here, right here and now. We're built to praise that king. I would like you to just let the words and the music, just close yourself in if you will, and just let the sound of that just wash over you for the next two minutes. And in your heart or even with your words, just praise that God as we just feel it and walk it in that moment. The hallelujah chorus.
Our prayer team is coming. There may be some of you here today who say, you know, I love the Hallelujah Chorus. I want to be up for it. But I got to tell you, something's happening in my world. And I just need somebody to take a hand for a moment and pray with me over my particular need. The folks will be here to pray with you at the end of our service. There will be pastors out in the guest services area. I'll go out there. And if you're a guest here, I'd love to meet you. And even if you're not a guest here, I'd love to meet you anyway out there. And uh, this, is, this is a wonderful benediction. It's from the last two verses of what some scholars would say, a half sheet of note paper, the letter from Jude. And this is how it reads, and I'd like you to read it with me. It will be on the screen. This is our benediction for the day. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and ever. Amen. It's Thanksgiving week. What a ton we have to be thankful for. And may the praise and thanks in your heart be palpable. Let it be said this week, when, well, when Harriet walked into our space over there, it just felt like a different presence coming into the room. I didn't, you know, I've wanted to do this for some time, and I haven't done it in the other services. We haven't done it here. I just think it's important. J.B. Phillips said that hallelujah means three cheers for Jesus. I just think we ought to go there. So I'm going to say hip, hip, and you just, it, none of this, give it. Everything, okay, ready? Here we go. Hip, hip. Hooray. Hip, hip. Hooray. Hip, hip. Hooray. Okay, you have to leave now. God bless you. <laughs>